0: So I will begin with prayer and then do a brief introduction. Heavenly Father, this is your house. We are your children. and We are here to listen to your voice as much as any human voice. So I pray for our hearts to be receptive, for our ears to be quickened, for our lives to be transformed. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing us here safely and for enabling us to participate in this festival on preaching. It's in your name we pray, amen. For those of you who have come to the festival, realize that every Wednesday we have no classes for the students. We call this day Pulse Day. It's where we have the opportunity to try to get our hearts in sync with that of the Father himself. So instead of being in the classroom, we have classrooms without walls. We do all kinds of events to stimulate our thinking, to warm our hearts, and to get our hands to be either dirty or calloused with service for the Lord. So this is what I, we call our Pulse Day. And we have intersected our Pulse Day with Festival on Preaching because many, many of our students are going out into ministry and uh, the ministry of proclamation will be at the core of who they are. So we thought this was a perfect way to sync these up. Guys, there are, there are seats up front if you'd like to take these. Um, our, our goal was to not just fill a pew, but fill the room. We really want to be right next to each other. So when Letty, Lenny says things that are deep and theological, maybe one of you will kind of groan. Ooh. Um, that's as close as we get in the Maritimes to an amen. But uh, anybody wants to start amening, you can begin that right now. All right. Okay, we'll get warmed up. Um, I could tell you all of the credentials of Lenny Lucchetti. Um, And they would, you've already got those on, on, it's on the website, it's on the the handouts. Um, You know that this man is qualified to bring teaching about bringing the word. But how about if I tell you a story, a backstory? Those are always much better than uh, the bio. The backstory is... I sat on the hiring committee to hire him as the professor of proclamation at Wesley Seminary. So we were having conversations. I know we had a couple Skype conversations, et cetera. But you need to know, I think you know this. If not, I'm probably sharing a story that I shouldn't share. We had desires. We wanted to hire a woman. That was the goal. If it wasn't going to be hiring a woman, we wanted to hire uh, an ethnic, uh, diverse person. We wanted that deeply to be a part of the, the ethos of Wesley Seminary. Um, and we then began to talk to Lenny Lucetti. And here, here was the, the next statement. That'll be the next hire because it'll be a deep mistake not to hire this man. The deep mistake, he actually called me, uh, I had made arrangements with Steve Deneff initially about this festival I'm preaching, and then Lenny was kind of the partnership, and he actually emailed me, and he goes, if, if you don't want me, that would be okay. Um, there's not an easy out to that. It would not be okay if you weren't here, Lenny. Um, so I bring to you Dr. Lenny Lucchetti to speak to us about transformation. So Lenny, blessings. Good? Here we go. All right. Yay!
1: At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I love him. Uh, There I said it. I wanted to make sure I said at least one thing that was worth saying today, and so I say that first. Uh, Thank you for a chance to come out, Dave. Thank you for that introduction. I am glad to be here. I came out back in 2011. Some of you were here. You are probably, and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke in your ears, you are one of the funnest groups of people that I get a chance to speak to. That's why I came back and glad that Dave invited me back. Uh, Canadians know how to have fun. How many of you are Canadian? How many of you are American? Okay, since Americans outnumber Canadians, I want to just rephrase what I just said about them. I thought I was winning friends and influencing people. <clears throat> <laughs> Evidently not. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. Uh, preachers and uh, preaching has seen better days. Uh, and some people want to blame this on those who listen to sermons. Listeners don't know how to listen anymore. Uh, they. Are burned out by information overload. The attention spans of congregational listeners are increasingly decreasing. They're constantly entertained by film and music and rhetoric and ordinary people like us can't compete and evoke their listening. Listeners just don't know how to listen anymore or as my cousin Michael likes to say in this dismal economy People are so broke, they can't even afford to pay attention. (laughs) That's how bad it is. I don't buy it. Not entirely. I believe that uh, listeners still show up to church on Sundays, hoping beyond all hope that the preacher will speak from deep within the soul to a place deep within their soul that deep will cry out to deep. And in order for that to happen, in order for uh, the preacher to speak the deep truth of God to a place deep within the recesses of the human soul, I don't think the preacher needs to become a better speaker. I think the preacher needs to become a better listener. Listener. <laughs> The best preachers are not the best speakers. They are the best listeners. They listen long and hard to the heart of God and the hopes of humanity and then articulate a sermon that brings the two together. And what's so hard these days is that we are frenetically running from one thing to the next as ministers, from one task to the next, from Facebook to Twitter. You can't listen when you're on the run. Sometimes my wife will try to speak to me uh, when I'm running around the house, tasking and tinkering. And I might hear her words, but I'm not listening for the words beyond her words, you know? About 10 years into uh, pastoral ministry, I hit a preaching wall. I was more caught up in what came out of my mouth than what I was taking in through the ears. I was busy. The church was growing, which was part of my problem. Uh, My family was growing. Not a problem, a blessing, but busy. Busy. We had three kids in three years. We had five consecutive years of diaper changing. And then when that was done, we got a puppy, Uh, more feces. Uh, I went to a a turnaround church that had chewed up and spit out five pastors in 10 years. More diaper changing. Everything was growing. The church was growing. Uh, My family was growing. Conflict was growing. Everything was growing but me. Unless you count my waistline. I gained like 20 pounds uh, one of those years. What I started to do, because I couldn't do it all, was I started to corner cut. And I couldn't cut the speaking corner because people showed up on Sunday expecting me to speak. I had to have something to say. And the corner I cut out of my preaching was not the speaking corner. It was the listening corner. It was... The corner in which I sat to engage the sermon preparation process devotionally, not just rhetorically, devotionally. The corner where I sat and said with Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm all ears. The corner I cut out of preaching was the corner in which I prayerfully wrestled with the angel to get a sermon from the text so that I came away with Jacob limping under the weight of a word from the Lord. The corner I cut was the listening corner in which I listened for the Spirit's prompting to guide me toward intercession for my people based upon the text I was preaching. The corner I cut was the listening corner in which I intentionally and intensely met with a cross-section of my members in order to listen for their hopes and their hurts, their dreams and disappointments, their faith and their fears. I cut the listening corner right out of my preaching, which left me with Little to say that was worth saying at all. We are, as preachers, so caught up, I think, in wanting to speak better. Speak profoundly. Speak eloquently. Speak fearlessly. Speak clearly. And wanting to acquire the skills to speak better is admirable and it's necessary. It's just not the primary gift the preacher needs. Preacher needs to be a better listener. After all, uh, speaking is not going to get us a word from the Lord. It's listening. The ability to listen for a word from the Lord that is both theologically substantive and contextually relevant, that is faithful to the biblical text and faithful to the contemporary context, a word that is like the word Jesus Christ, authentically representative of both divinity and humanity. That's what people show up to church for. The primary gift of the preacher is a listening gift. The preacher is above all, a listener. I think of the preacher as a, as, as a courier who exchanges messages between two lovers. So, so the courier goes to the guy, and the guy says, tell her I love her and I want her back, and, uh, and I'll do whatever it takes to, to reconcile. And then, and then the courier takes the message to the, the woman. He loves you, he wants you back, he'll do whatever it takes. And she says, tell him I miss him, and I'm sorry I hurt him, and I want him back too. And then the courier goes back to the guy and gives that message from the lady. That's what the preacher does. The preacher is the courier who exchanges messages between two lovers, who listens long and hard to the heart of God and the hopes of humanity. And after long, hard listening, articulates the voice of both to bring these two lovers together through the sermon. That's what preaching is. I used to think that uh, my primary vocation was to help preachers discover or recover their voice for preaching. I was wrong. Some time ago it occurred to me that before the preacher can find his or her voice, the preacher must first find his or her ears Trying to have something to say without long, hard listening is like putting the cart before the horse. I mean, having nothing to say but saying it very well uh, might, you know, wow people, but it's not going to transform people. So make no mistake about it. I'm pull no punches. We're gonna we're gonna talk in the next two sessions about how to uh, practically explore ways to listen for the heart of God, and then the next third session, how to explore ways to listen for the hopes of humanity. But let me pull no punches and just simply saying the best preachers are not the best speakers. They are the best listeners. And if we're ever going to speak the deep truth of God to a place deep within the human soul, we've got to develop the character of a listener. If we're ever going to have the listening capacity to get God right, theology, and to get the text right, exegesis, and to get our people right, contextuality, and to get the sermon right, homiletics. We've got to get ourselves right, holiness. The holy preacher is the one who is caught up in this sacred love triangle with God, the people, and the text and then finds a way to articulate the intersection between the three through the sermon. The best speakers, I'm being uh, intentionally redundant, (laughs) the best speakers are the best listeners, and the best listeners are holy people. So I want to just, I want to talk about six traits of a uh, listening preacher and I'll go through these rather quickly because I want to have a chance for you to dialogue. with time. There was a time, okay. Uh, the first C of a listening uh, preacher is cruciformity. Steve got at this so well last night and he said it better than I'll ever say it, but cruciformity. There are few occupational hazards uh, more potent than egotism for the preacher. Uh, in the Greco-Roman culture out of which the church grew, People idolized rhetorical ability, and they paid a lot of money for it. And today, people idolize rhetorical ability, the ability to speak well. Uh, You remember in the Corinthian church, you weren't there, but you remember reading in the Corinthian church that uh, there was this My Favorite Preacher war going on. So some were saying, I follow Apollo. Some were saying, well, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Peter. And then some were pulling the Christ card. Well, I follow Jesus. That was the culture. And Paul, in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, combated this my favorite preacher war, this idolizing of rhetorical eloquence. And he said, when I came to you, Corinthians, I didn't come with persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with rhetorical eloquence. I came to you in the power of the Spirit. I decided to know nothing when I was with you but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, women, but on the power of God. Paul said in another place, uh, Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse, my life verse, really, not because I get it, but because I want to. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I, the emphatic Greek use of I, the Greek word there used is ego. I, my ego, is crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me, so that the life I live and the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every preaching class I teach, I have on the first day uh, the students do this exercise. I have them write their name on on an index card and then write the word ego. Uh, So I write Lenny's ego, uh, Dave's ego. HC's ego. So they all do that. And then we, I ask them to go outside of the classroom. These are adult students, by the way. I had one guy in my class who's 76. So it's a little bit childish, but they do it. They go out of the classroom, and I stand at the door with a trash can. And they walk into the room, and they drop their ego, as if it were that easy, in the trash can. So they check their ego at the door. And the point is, if we're ever going to reach our full potential for impact as preachers, We have got to make sure our ego is crucified. The cruciform preacher is crucified with Christ. The cruciform preacher is more concerned with loving people than impressing people. More concerned with God's glory than self-glory. Here's another thing I say to my students, and I say it ad nauseum, intentionally. Ministry is perfectly designed for the crucifixion of the ego. And if your ego doesn't get crucified, your ministry will. (laughs) Ministry is perfectly designed for the crucifixion of the ego. And if your ego does not get crucified, your ministry will. Next one, connection. Connection to Christ, connection to the church, connection to the community. Connection to Christ. Uh, I remember when I was uh, heading off to Houghton College in Western New York to study to be a pastor, and I asked one of my friends who'd been a pastor for about 15, 20 years, his name was Colin, I said, so I'm, I'm heading off to Houghton to, to study to be a pastor, I wasn't raised in the Christian home, wasn't raised in the church, so like, what does a pastor do? I just feel called, I have no idea what it, what, it, what I do, though. And uh, Colin, while he was driving, he just, he didn't say a word, he just pointed to his knees. And I was thinking, well, thank you, that was very helpful. Um, <laughs> After about a minute, I realized what he was saying. He was saying that in the context of pastoral ministry, you had better make sure you stay on your knees connected to Christ or you will be dead in the proverbial water. In Mark 3.14, Mark narrates, after Jesus selected the 12, Mark tells us that he selected them so that they might be with him and then that they might preach. But the first call is to be with him. Jesus put it this way in John 15. He said, apart from the vine, a branch bears. Apart from me, you can do. But if you remain in me, I will remain in you, and you will bear much. Okay. Sometimes in ministry, we're like starving bakers. We're always baking spiritual goodies for other people that we ourselves never partake of. How can we nourish the souls of other people if we aren't allowing Christ to nourish our own soul? It's crazy. We do it all the time because we feel guilty to partake of the past, of the, uh, of the pastries that God sends our way. Connection to uh, the church. You ever have one of your lay people come up to you after a sermon? I hope you do. And they say to you, uh, were you bugging my home? That sermon was just for me. How'd you know? My wife been talking to you? Well, you weren't bugging their home, I don't think. I don't know what they do in Canada, but we don't do that in the States. But but, but you as a pastor, when you hear that, it's because you have the spiritual pulse of your congregation. You live and move and breathe among them, and you know them, and you speak profound truth into their lives, and they sense it. One of the biggest mistakes I think we make, especially as the church grows, and I made this mistake in my most recent ministry context. As the church grows, I spent less and less and less time with my people. And I got cloistered in my study, which is necessary. And it wasn't always to prepare sermons. It was to build administrative systems to sort of make sure all these people coming in were getting discipled. But what happened was my preaching suffered. I took the pulse off the congregation. And at some point, about 10 years into my ministry, I just made sure that I would say no to more administrative leadership, because I had to, in order to spend time intentionally with a cross-section of my people to listen for their hopes and hurts, dreams and disappointments, so I could speak profoundly to them. And my church taught me how to preach. My church taught me how to preach more than any Seminary professor ever did if you lean into your congregation, they will tell you how to preach if you listen And then connection to the community <clears throat> When I went uh, To my most recent pastor first year. I was there. I asked a friend of mine some advice another friend who didn't just point to his knees. He actually gave, gave me good advice um, Verbal advice. He said he said make a list of community leaders politicians, police chiefs, uh, fire chiefs, school principals, community service directors, and start taking them each out to lunch and breakfast. You buy. Don't be a cheap pastor. Pastors are miserly. But you go ahead and buy and ask them two questions when you're at lunch or breakfast with them. Uh, first, validate their leadership, appreciate them and what they do for the community, and then ask two questions. He said, first question is, uh, you know the community well. What do you think are the most pressing needs in this community? And then just listen. Second question is, what do you think a church might do to meet some of those needs? And then just shut up and listen. And what I discovered from these meetings is that there were two significant issues in our community. Our community was uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, almost entirely white. Anybody from PA? All right. All right. PA's in the house. Great, great. Um, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, the Poconos. Okay? So uh, post nine, so it was entirely white, pretty much, but post 9-11, uh, we had an influx of people from New York City and Philadelphia, and our community became very uh, multi-ethnic, and there were racial tensions. So racial reconciliation was one of the most pressing needs in that community. I also discovered that addiction recovery was a significant need. Uh, the Poconos just built a casino, which not only led to gambling addiction, but alcohol addiction. When you lose your money, you get sad and start drinking and drugging. So that's what was happening. So addiction recovery and racial reconciliation were two significant needs in the community. And all I did was listen to community leaders tell me this. I listened, I listened. So I started to preach to those community needs. And in time, in about four years, we became a a multi-ethnic addiction recovery church. We had... uh, I don't celebrate this really, but we had people coming to church drunk and high. They would rather be at church intoxicated than at home sobering up to keep on their happy mask. Significant. The next uh, C of a listening preacher is compassion. This may seem obvious, almost too obvious to mention, but if you don't love people, don't preach. I've heard preachers actually say this. Some of them say it tongue-in-cheek, but some of them actually mean it. They say, I love God, I love the Bible, I love preaching, I just don't love people. And I want to say, if you love God, you will love people. If you love God, you will love what he loves. God happens to love people. Saying I love God but don't love people is like saying I love Canada but don't love hockey, you know? I knew that would win a few points. Any Flyers fans in the house? I'm from Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love? If your brother looks just like you? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Letter grade reduction, buddy, right there. Uh, I don't know what you said, but it wasn't good probably. Jesus is the compassion king. I mean, he he uh, often in the Gospels, we read that Jesus looked out at the crowd, and uh, he was filled with compassion. The Greek word is splagnizomai. You don't have to spell that. But it's not a warm, fuzzy kind of compassion, like, oh, I feel bad for you. Splagnizomai is a deep in the bowels of your body pain that you feel on behalf of someone else who's in pain so that you move toward action to alleviate their pain. It's a pain that will haunt you until you do something about that person's pain. That's compassion. And compassion for the preacher is the capacity to put ourselves in the situational shoes of the people to whom we preach so that we feel the pain they feel and address it through gospel preaching. It's so easy in ministry to become numb to people's pain, isn't it? You can be honest here. You don't have to wear the pastoral happy face. You can. It's easy to become numb to people's pains because we're constantly immersed in it. And when you're constantly around something, you become numb to it. You become used to it. You clam up compassion. And plus, as leaders, we have our own wounds to lick, don't we? So we're people in pain trying to minister to people in pain, and that's tough. And if we're not careful, we can robotically go through the motions without really feeling deeply for the people around us. I think about Jesus, the compassion king. Here he is, uh, sitting by a well in Samaria, Exhausted, the weight of the world sins on his shoulders, a substantial to-do list, just wanting to rest, and along comes another person who needs his ministry. And she doesn't strike up a conversation with him because it was taboo in that culture. He actually, exhausted though he was, initiates a conversation with this woman who was in desperate need of a friend. That's compassion. He was belittled, bloodied, beaten, bruised by the people he came to serve, and he did not withhold compassion from them still. And anyone who preaches in the name of Jesus will do the same. Then there's courage. We often think of courage and compassion uh, as on different poles, different spectrums, sides of the spectrum. But actually, compassion fosters courage to stand up and speak truth. If you love people, you can say anything to them. In my Italian family, you can say, I hate you and I love you in the same sentence. You can just kind of say that, never meaning it, of course. right? You can punch somebody and then hug them in an Italian family. That's the way I think the preacher needs to be. Courage. Christian preaching is not for cowards. Say that with me. Christian preaching is not for cowards. Preaching requires the courage to follow a biblical text, even if it leads to places the preacher would rather not go. That's courage. Preaching requires the courage to challenge injustice, not only outside of the church, but inside of the church. Preaching requires the courage to attack uh, not only secular politics when they're off base, but church politics when they're off base. Do you have the courage to preach on sexuality in a way that is redemptive enough to offend legalists and challenging enough to offend libertines? Do you? Do you have the courage to preach on a biblical view of war in a way that challenges and offends the sensibilities of people on every side of that issue? Christian preaching is not for cowards. Say it again. Christian preaching is not for cowards. Okay, all right, all right. Commitment. Let's talk about commitment. <clears throat> three, three commitments. Commitment to the word, commitment to develop, commitment to prepare. The biblical text has to take the lead in the homiletic dance. I know we're Wesleyans and don't dance much, but think of preaching as a dance. Who takes the lead? The preacher, the illustration, the video clip, or the biblical text? I had a pastor, uh, one of my first pastors, my first Wesleyan pastor. Uh, I received my call to ministry under his ministry. Great guy, took me under his wing, and then he sort of went off the deep end so that every sermon he preached uh, in a string of about two years, always ended with a tirade against the Catholic Church, against the focus on the family, uh, against promise keepers. Were, those, that was his tyrannical three. <laughs> and he went after them, every sermon. He was on a soapbox. He was on a vendetta. Pastor Frank lost his commitment, I think, to the truth of God's word, because I don't think every text in the Bible had something to say to those three. Commitment also to develop as a preacher. This is big. Are your best preaching years behind you or ahead of you? If you're committed to develop as a preacher, your best days are ahead of you. One of my favorite bands is U2, sorry, but U2 has been playing together for over 40 years and they keep the essence of their sound and yet they always have a willingness to experiment and try something new. They keep developing. I have a 76-year-old student right now in my preaching class, 76 years old. This guy's been preaching longer than I've been alive, and I'm teaching him how to preach. (laughs) This guy is committed to develop as a preacher. After he gets his MDiv, he wants to get his doctor of ministry degree. (laughs) He's not done. I know preachers who every year will sketch out a... uh, a preaching growth plan. Well, they will, li- they will list uh, the books they will read, the conferences they will attend, uh, who will be their preaching coach, how often they will view other preachers and who they will view, uh, how often they will uh, view their own sermons critically, constructively. And they keep getting better. You don't get better at preaching by accident. I don't get better at golf by accident. I've been golfing for 20 years. I still am just as bad as I, I was when I started because I don't have any plan for growth. <laughs> the preacher who has a growth plan, grows. And prepare. Let me just say quickly about this. Uh, oh yeah, we're all right time? Um, some preachers, almost as a badge of honor, uh, brag about not having to prepare a lot. Almost as if it's spiritual to pull off a Saturday night special. That's Spiritual. I just wait for God to speak to me on Saturday night or Sunday morning, and that makes me more spiritual than you because you listen to the voice of God through the text starting on Monday. That's not spiritual. That's unspiritual laziness. Okay. Worse than the preacher with no skill who at least tries is the preacher with skill who doesn't prepare. Okay. Uh, clonelessness. <clears throat> One of the first preaching conferences I ever went to uh, was leading and communicating to change lives with Bill Hybels and John Maxwell. Any of you guys ever you go to that one? Did I come to Canada? It was all over the States. Uh, I was a new preacher. I was really struggling with finding my own voice in preaching, you know, who I was as a preacher. And I went to that conference, and, and it was liberating to me because you have Bill Hybels who just, you know, stands behind the podium, kind of reads his notes, Kind of, res- he's a reserved Dutchman. And then you had John Maxwell, who's charismatic, extroverted, all over the place, throwing stuff out at the crowd, meandering through the crowd. And I remember God saying to me, Lynn, you just be the best you you can be. I thought there was this mold I had to fit in as a pastor. I had to sort of look a certain way and act a certain way because I didn't feel like I fit. And God said, like, you don't have to fit. Just be the best you you can be. I have two friends uh, who are youth pastors, they were, not anymore, and I remember there's two of the most engaging, fun guys I know. I mean, they are just so much fun. But when they got up to preach in big church, it's like there was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde going on. They were trying to be like their grandfather or something, like they lost all of who they were when they stood up to preach. I was like, come out, come out, wherever you are, where are you, Paul? You're funny, man. You're dynamic. Where is it? You don't have to be your grandfather. Be you. That goes not only for delivery. It goes for content as well. You don't have to clone somebody else's content. You don't need to listen for Rick Warren's word from the Lord. You can listen for a word from the Lord. And Rick Warren doesn't know your people. He doesn't pray for your people. You do. Clonelessness. All right. I've said enough to get me in trouble. Here's a few questions I want you to consider, then we're actually going to talk it out in in groups. I'm going to give you about three minutes to just reflect on this, uh, listening for God to give you impressions. Three questions. Which of these uh, six Cs do you most embody? Celebrate it. Which of these do you least embody? Confess it. And then which of these do you think your church most needs from you to embody right now? Okay, three questions, go. And then we're gonna talk it out in groups. And just pair up, get in groups of three, grab a cookie, but but do this.
0: <clears throat>
1: Good? Okay. How many of you are still talking about the topic? <laughs> five of you, great. Uh, I think we're going to do some, some Q&A, maybe just five minutes, then we'll have a break. If you want to, uh, By the way, always feel free to push back. I tell my students in class, I am not the resident expert. Uh, I'll say what John Stott said when he went to speak to a group of pastors. He said, by speaking to you about preaching, I am assuming that uh, neither I am an expert, or that you are novices, okay? So we are colleagues in this together. I am not the resident expert. Uh, So feel free to push back and I'll push back on you maybe or I'll change my mind, but uh, any, any questions? If not, I have questions for you, I have more questions. thinking about clonelessness and it seems to me that there have been certainly times in history and and even more so now actually it's becoming a problem when when it was considered not only appropriate but but expected to use somebody else's material and and what would be the place for that today because we have a lot of programs coming our way you know you mentioned rick Warrior early often so if your church decides to do 40 days in the word mm-hmm. you know how do we translate that into our voice recognizing that at some point we are cloning something from away yeah well, great question. There, there was a time uh, John Wesley gave his sermons to uh, circuit riders and preachers, lay preachers, especially. And uh, back then, of course, the educational opportunities were not as prevalent as they are today. Okay, So there was a, it's a different day, and he was trying to form them theologically for the sake of the movement. So there were, there were some good reasons to do that although Wesley would even hope that in time they found their voice. By reading good sermons and even preaching them, they found their voice. And there was no sort of uh, pulling a fast one. Everybody knew they were preaching Wesley's sermons. So it wasn't like I'm presenting my, you know, this is this is Rick Warren's, but I'm presenting it as my own. I've done 40 Days of Purpose. I've done uh, Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybels' deal with the church I pastored. And uh, I'll just say those, those are hardest for me, actually, than starting from scratch because I have to – I let, and I tell my people, listen, we're doing this four-week series. Rick, I give credit to Rick Warren. Most of the thoughts are from him, but I've had to sort of funnel it through Lenny Lucetti and internalize it, and it comes out a different way than he prepared it. Uh, and Rick Warren and I we're just preach very different. He's a great preacher, but we just preach differently. So it's almost just as much work for me to internalize it and, and, and bake it uh, in a way that's true to who I am, authentic to me, and contextual for my particular people. Uh so that's how I get around that. And, I, I, you know, the reason why I, I, I tell preachers in my classes, make sure you preach your own sermons, is number one, if you're preaching somebody else's, a couple of reasons, you will never develop. <laughs> you know, you won't. And you will miss out. It's the big one. You will miss out on your own spiritual formation by running to someone else's word from the Lord. You will shortchange the work. Forget what God wants to do through you. We're so enamored with what God wants to do through us that we don't give God a chance to sometimes do something significant in us. And that's what waiting and listening and wrestling with the text, waiting for a word from the Lord is all about. And I don't want preachers to miss that by running to pastors.com or whatever. You know? Good question. Uh, Do you find with uh, some of the churches you uh, attended, I I grew up in the era when it was called the sacred desk. And now we're not using anything. Uh, except, you know, our Bibles or our podiums, whatever, because it's
0: a whole different feeling in worship now with using and not using. Uh, I know in my thesis I did a whole part of a whole chapter on the the barriers between the preach, the pulpit, and the pew, and you had to get beyond the pulpit, you had to get beyond the community
1: table, you had to get beyond the the 20 feet between the pulpit and and the people, and then another 35 feet
0: before the people even showed up. So it's a long distance between where you're preaching from and where the people are hearing. Uh, do you find those barriers are being broken down now by almost, uh, I would say, a little bit uh,
1: more um, uh, intimate style of worship and preaching? Yeah. <clears throat> I think there was a time back in the 80s where uh, it's a big historical swing. But I, I think uh, the church in the 80s, uh, the mainline church, by and large, was presenting a God who is mysterious and transcendent and inaccessible. Okay? So God is there, but you just really can't know him. He's just sort of... Uh, And so the seeker-sensitive movement came along and swung the pendulum back here. Uh, God is sort of like us. We'll bring God down to a bite-sized, palatable level. And it was good in a lot of ways. But I think because the pendulum swung so far this way, we've got rid of religious symbolism and all that stuff. I think there's actually a hunger to recapture the mystery and the transcendence of God uh, with religious symbols, the cross, the pulpit, communion table without losing the accessibility that the seeker-sensitive movement brought in. So I think we need to capture both. Uh, But there is that sort of, I mean, listen, there was a day, I don't know what it's like in Canada, it's probably the same, but there was a day when the preacher was innocent until proven guilty. Today is not that day. Today a preacher is guilty until proven innocent, so you got to remove any barriers that might give people the impression you're trying to hide who you really are. That's tough. Different day, it's a different day. (coughs)
0: Lenny, thanks for this. I was just wondering if you could elaborate more on the connection one about how the church will uh, tell you how to preach. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a lot of sub questions, but you know, if I if I were to meet everyone's wants, you know, I'd have to preach shorter and longer. <laughs> I'd have to be more funny and more serious, like those <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, also how how do you discern, um, you know, from from knowing your congregation, you, you can say, oh man, you know, we really need to deal with sexual sin. Or as you're as you in your Bible and Jesus says something and you go, oh, our church needs to hear that. So how do you how do you plan out um, how you meet those needs for the for the church?
1: Yeah, <laughs> great question. I uh, I mean, there's the practical part of of uh, every maybe twice a year putting in a, a survey in your bulletin that that asks people three basic questions. So, uh, what do you appreciate most about the preaching in this church? Uh, what do you what would you change about the preaching in this church? Uh, name a recent sermon that had a significant impact on you, then you can discover a lot just by doing practical things like that. Also, um, have a focus group in your church that you might meet with, maybe a cross-section of seven to ten people that represent the genders, the ethnicities, the levels of spiritual maturity, uh, generations. And then sit with them after the sermon and say, you know, where? Did, don't ask, did you like the sermon? Because they'll say yes. But uh, buy them lunch and then ask them, you know, where did you most encounter God in the sermon? Uh, when did you start to check out? Uh, did you learn anything about scripture? So you can do practical things like that, and they'll teach you how to preach. People, lay people will tell you. Uh, we have to find creative ways to solicit feedback about our preaching and input into what we, the sermons we preach. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not after uh, giving into people's wants. I think as the resident pastor, we need to have our, uh, our hand on the pulse of people's spiritual needs. And they're often different than their spiritual wants or their wants, um, I, but, but I think sort of more more, uh, more ambiguous, but I think just making sure that we are not a ministry robotron up among our people, just going through the motions like the donut, Dunkin' Donuts guy, you know, time to make the donuts, um, that we're actually living and breathing and we're real among our people and we're sharing, not just, not just ministering to them, but allowing them to minister to us, uh, Henry nowen has a book uh, in the name of Jesus where he says we're, we're just we have too many boundaries with our people we have to have some but he says we, we close we close our, as ministers we close ourselves off uh, to the ministry that our churches want to give us and he says just live among people, be among people, hang out with people and it's there that we learn uh, their preaching needs I think the tendency in ministry is as the church grows we tend to cloister off in a corner
0: and that's a mistake I think thanks thanks very much you guys will have opportunities to be with him all day long he'll have two more sessions um if you want to do it let's do a quick stand-up break for about 10 minutes there's coffee in the back washrooms in the back left and right plenty of people around you that want to fellowship so we'll be back together again in about 10 minutes